Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Could listening to other people's stories be an important way to build empathy, that valuable ability to put yourself in someone else's position to understand their feelings? That's one of the interesting ideas getting explored in an art installation that's now become a podcast called A Mile in My Shoes. The arty part of the idea is that a shipping container designed to look like a shoebox arrives in your town. You borrow a real pair of someone else's shoes, put on your headphones and go for a walk while you listen to a story lasting about 10 minutes from the shoes owners. And these stories come from a collection featuring people from all walks of life, from sex workers to surgeons, from refugees to the rescue services. Now, the borrowing the shoes part isn't going to be an option if you subscribe to the podcast, but I'll speak to artist Claire Patey, who set up the project in a minute, about how it all works. These stories are even being used to influence English MPs. First, though, here's one of the stories from Australia. A gentleman, he was actually a member of parliament, and his office was in the same building as the pharmacy I worked in. And his wife came and and said... uh, my husband wants to do the ring test on your baby to see what you're having. And I said, go for it, you know, put out the stomach, it's all there, go for it. And he predicted that I was having a little boy. His wife assured me that he had never been wrong. He'd been doing it for 30 years. And when I gave birth to a little girl, the man was devastated. I just about had to take the nappy off to prove it, you know, that Nick was a little girl. But I'd love to be able to reach that man now and say, you were right, and put his record back to being perfect. My name is Diane Lawrence. I'm 60 years old and I'm mother of two sons, and my eldest son is transgender. Nick, from a very early age, was very tomboyish, didn't like girly clothes, didn't like frilly things. As a matter of fact, I actually had to pay him once to wear a frilly shirt to impress his auntie. I had no idea what Nick was going through as a teenager, but I was aware that she had issues with her emotions and and ups and downs. I put a lot of it down to teenage hormones. You know, you do get a bit out of whack. Tried to feed him vitamin B, but he thought I was going to turn him into a drug addict. (laughs) That was hilarious, that argument. Yeah, I just didn't realise that my situation with Nick was probably worse than what was normal, but... None of my friends sort of had girls that age, so I had nothing to compare it to. Nick opened up to me about being lesbian when he was around 15 or 16. I was a little bit devastated when he told me about it. I didn't understand it, so I had to do a lot of research into it, I suppose, just to educate myself, because I'd already suspected it before he came out and told me. He was very harsh the way he told me basically said, oh, I'm gay, mum, deal with it. Nick was highly, always has been highly intelligent, but couldn't settle to any particular career. We tried a few different things, personal trainers, you name it, all sorts of jobs. He got offered an apprenticeship as a motor mechanic and 
he just hit his stride, just loved it. That was really the start for Nick, because right up to that, being gay, there's still a lot of prejudice out there about, you know, girls working in men's worlds and things like that. I know he's been on the T's, as they call them, the injections and that, for four years now, but he put off telling me, because I was in a major stress situation myself, and he didn't want to add to my stress, that's what a gorgeous kitty is. He um, put it off as long as he could. But he said he had started to see changes in himself. And he thought, if I don't tell mum real soon, she's going to get one hell of a shock. So, yeah, he came over and sat me down and told me. It was a bit nerve-wracking for me. I just thought, what next? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen next? And Nick explained it all to me. He was just brilliant. And at the end of the conversation, I was quite happy to see that the path he was going on seemed to be what he wanted. One of the biggest annoyances that Nick has if people call him a her or call him by his original name, which was Nicole, but I'm the only one in the world that's allowed to call Nick a girl or her, which I frequently do. And when I'm angry, it, Nicole always comes out. I was pretty upset in a sense that I'd lost my daughter. To have my own little girl, that was, that's my every mum's dream. And to have grandchildren and all that sort of things, that was very hard for me to, to deal with. But I couldn't show that to Nick because Nick had enough of his own things to deal with. He didn't need to deal with a mum that was losing the plot a bit. I just kept it to myself and, and dealt with it my own way, which I always have done. I do have some awesome friends that I did discuss it with. I thought, what, what if they don't accept Nick the way he is? I think I'm really blessed to have a really magnificent group of friends because everybody was just so supportive. And they said, well, yeah, if that's what makes Nick happy and makes you happy, makes everybody happy, that's good. In a way, I know I did think to myself, I was glad my dad had gone. Like My mother died when I was very young, so I never had a mum. But I don't think my dad could have dealt with it. He never even knew that Nick was gay. I just, he's a real old-time Australian, bushy, you know, farmer, shearer. And I, I have no idea whether, how he would have reacted. Nick warned me right from the start, told me stage by stage what transition would happen and in, usually in what period of time, you know. So um, I've had no surprises as such. It's been interesting to see the changes, like the hereditary side of it, where as a, a female, Nick had a full head of hair, magnificent head of hair. But now as a man, he's taken up the genes from the men's side of our family and he's going bald. He said he would like get more masculine facial features. His body would grow. It would become more, more masculine. Like he's got really nice big shoulders and <laughs> big muscles. And um, his facial features, he's got a much stronger jaw. The, it doesn't have the nice cheekbones anymore. They're gone. Uh, he's got a beard, which I don't like. If he ever goes to sleep around me, I'm going to shave it off. <laughs> but, yeah, that's his choice. And weirdly enough, his feet grew. 
before this happened to Nick, or Nick decided to go down this journey, I had never heard of it. I'd seen, because Nick is gay, I'd been out in the gay group with Nick. You know, I've gone to the court with them and Connie's and, you know, I mix with all their friends. They're all awesome people. And you do see people that, like men dressed up as girls and they're, oh, trans, oh, I can't think of the word, transvestites, that's the word, transvestites. But I'd never heard of transgender before. Nick has just changed so much. He's so stable as a person. There's not this flighty up one minute, down the next, and no raging hormones, I suppose. It was just because Nick was so frustrated with his life, I think, the way it was. Nick set up Trans Men WA because there was nothing here for the young ones coming up. As far as transitioning, Nick transitioned fairly late in life, but early 30s. Some translate even later, but generally the kids today are knowing in their early teens that they want to be a boy or a girl. And Nick found that there was no support or anything in WA. So Nick thought, well, I'll do it myself. Now Nick's making speeches. He's doing lectures to university students. He did a lecture recently to a stadium full of professors and psychologists and that, teaching them about transgender. And I was like, wow, that's my kid. Just so confident. It's love to see him doing that. The person that Nick used to be as a girl, that person could never have done anything like that. Diane Lawrence's story produced by Mary Fatin for A Mile In My Shoes. And Claire Patey's the artist who came up with the idea. I guess it's about exploring the kind of notion of shared humanity and that all of the stories in some way are rooted in something that we all experience. So they might be about grief, but they also might be about love. And they're all things that we can find points of connection with. I guess it's also a moment where you spend 10 minutes, and I know that doesn't sound very long, but actually listening to another person without any other distraction. And you're on a physical journey. So you're doing the walking and an emotional journey because you're listening to the story. But it's very intimate. And is that because of the medium? Is that because you are wearing headphones and, and, you know, people talk about listening to podcasts and the way that that's almost, you know, the voice is right there in your head. Is that part of the reason this works? I think so. I think it's very, very intimate. I think it works for that reason in that you feel like this person is literally talking to you and they're kind of like your friend, but then you're wearing their shoes, so you're embodying something of them. And that is really powerful too because you are walking along and you can kind of feel the shape of their their shoes. And you might be wearing a pair of giant waders or a pair of roller skates or if you're a guy you might be wearing like size 12 patent leather stilettos it's you know that it could be really different from what you're used to walking around in and obviously if you're getting the podcast which you've set up you're not going to be getting the shoes as well so what could you do to recreate that well we've got a picture of the shoes and at the beginning of each podcast there's a description of the shoes so you hopefully get in that in your imaginary life And also we just suggest that it's best listened to if you actually walk. So where have you actually done this so far? We've been 
all over the UK. We're, we've just finished a project with the National Theatre of Scotland with stories from teenagers. We've shown it in the Houses of Parliament with a special version just around the National Health Service. So the idea was to get policymakers to walk in the shoes of the people who deliver the service. We've done it in festivals in Europe, and we've been at the Perth International Arts Festival in Australia. We've been in Sao Paulo in Brazil. I've just come back from New York. We've done it there. And everywhere we go, we try to collect new shoes and new stories from the community in which we're showing the exhibition. So the collection, if you like, is constantly growing and the voices, the diversity of the voices is is constantly growing too. And how do people respond when they come back from this walk and and this listen? What, what What kind of things do they say? There have been all sorts of reactions. We've had people who've written entire letters to the person that they've just heard. We've had people in tears because it's brought something up from them. We've had people who've said it's really challenged their preconceived ideas about what that kind of person might be like. We've had quite grumpy older man who said that it just made him like other people more, which I liked. Um, <laughs> Drat. Surgeons come in talking about like how the when you train to be a surgeon, you have to kind of completely break down your empathy, otherwise you couldn't like operate on a body. And just talking about the kind of wider concept of empathy. We've had people talking about issues of like social justice and human rights, and then people just talking about their own experience of bereavement or love or whatever it is. I think it's a bit like going traveling. When you go traveling, you think, oh, I'm going to go to India or something. I'm going to learn loads and loads about Indian culture. And you'd go there. And actually, what it also does is make you reflect on your own culture and how you've seen that for your entire life without kind of questioning it. And I think it's got all sorts of other uses in terms of things like design. I mean, how do you design a tin opener for somebody who is in their 80s with arthritis or things to do with kind of restorative justice and bringing people together who have committed or been victims of a crime. One of the things we did was we we did the collected these stories from across the National Health Service. And a really powerful moment for me was when a local doctor walked in the shoes of his receptionist and they worked together every day. And they probably sit maybe 20 metres apart from each other every day. And he just turned to her and said, I had absolutely no idea that that was what your experience is like every day at work. And it's completely changed my view of how the practice runs and how I kind of see the roles within it. And I felt like that was, you know, that's as important to me as walking in the shoes of someone who's come from across the world or has a very different cultural or religious belief to you, a political view. How do you choose the people to tell their stories? It's mainly based on location. So, for instance, we opened the very first one on the banks of the River Thames in Vauxhall and it's an area that's changing a lot there's a lot of building going on the new American embassy is based there but there's also a uh, traditionally a very big kind of gay scene and drag scene in the local pub so we got everyone from a drag queen to someone whose family had worked on the Thames for 400 years to a gardener from the American embassy so we kind of reach out geographically and then through kind of community networks And then what happens is, and through social media and stuff, and then what happens is people go, oh, you must talk to George. He runs the garage down the road and he's got this amazing story about whatever, or he's a great storyteller. And then, you know, gradually, gradually, you begin to find the people who would be happy to share their story. 
And is it an interview in the conventional sense where you're asking questions or do you literally just surrender the mic to the person and say, look, you, you say what you want? Well, we do a kind of pre-interview. So we'd get some idea of what someone might want to say. And sometimes it's very kind of um, not prescribed, but people are coming with a particular story that they want to tell about um, maybe being the mother of someone, a transgender person, and they want to talk about the experience of that. So that there would be a kind of, a narrative arc to that story and we would talk to someone about that but sometimes it's much more open than that like what's it like to own a shop that serves a local community and you're a barber and you just talk about that and actually a whole load of things come out of that conversation but we talk to people for quite a long time and then edit it down to 10 minutes and I work with an amazing team of audio producers I don't do all that Right. Because it's interesting, isn't it? I I would have thought going somewhere with a microphone and recording gear, it would kind of inhibit people a little bit. But a few people now have said, no, in a funny way, actually having recording gear and a microphone, in a sense, it breaks down barriers in a funny way and it makes people open up a little bit more. What do you think about that? I'm not sure, but I think there is definitely that stranger on the bus syndrome. (laughs) Like, you know, you might tell someone in a room on your own, where you're being encouraged to share your story, something that you might not tell people who are related to you or that you see every day. There's a kind of freedom in it, I think. You could say anything. There's a kind of freedom and an openness in that. And actually you're saying to someone, what's it like to be you? What's it like to walk a mile in your shoes? And I guess in a sense it's quite a flattering thing to be asked that, you know, maybe some people don't get asked that question very much and they probably respond quite well to being able to tell the story in their own words. Absolutely. I think, you know, whose voices get heard is a really political issue. And um, we try to ask kind of as diverse a group of people as possible in terms of age, in terms of what they do, in terms of class, gender, uh, background, culture, the whole thing. Claire Patey of the Empathy Museum and the A Mile In My Shoes podcast. And one container-sized shoebox is expected to make an appearance at next year's Melbourne International Arts Festival. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.